build a trusted research environment, a trusted ecosystem whereby patients can have confidence their data is being used safely and securely to make sure you're getting this piece right around de-identifying, removing all of those patient identifiers from that free text, that unstructured information in the medical record so that it can then safely be analysed by people beyond the care team. Welcome to the AWS Health Innovation Podcast, where you can learn from entrepreneurs and investors who are driving progress in healthcare and life science around the globe. Mental health struggles affect millions, yet treatment options remain limited. Acrivia Health sees vast potential in patient data to change that. With over 20 billion data points across 5 million electronic health records, Acrivia has built one of the world's most extensive structured psychiatric datasets. I'm Alex Merwin from AWS, and in today's episode, I speak with David Newton, co-founder and COO of Acrivia Health, about how they process free text notes into structured data using natural language processing, all while protecting patient privacy. By linking this information with genomic data and other biomarkers, Acrivia aims to accelerate drug discovery and improve mental health outcomes. Let's get into it. David Newton, the COO and co-founder of Acrivia Health, welcome to the AWS Health Innovation Podcast. I'm really excited to speak with you today because uh, there's a lot of investment in health innovation, but there are some areas that are not receiving their their fair share of investment given the huge patient need uh, and just the relative ease of developing therapeutics. And I use that with a very strong asterisk. I know we'll get into the details, but I know that you're working at Acrivia Health to help narrow that gap, at least in mental health care. Maybe for our listeners who are less familiar with the company, can you briefly describe what Acrivia Health does and the main problem that it aims to solve? Acrivia is a AI-based company, we deliver software services aimed fundamentally at curating electronic medical records. Quite specifically, in terms of the problem that technology is solving, electronic medical records have an enormous amount of information captured in them. Some of the challenging with taking that data and using it for things beyond just direct care of patients, using it in the world of research, transforming healthcare systems so they can become self-learning systems as well and learn from their interventions particularly in the area we work in mental health um, and psychiatry. Data is captured within long clinical notes, typed text within the medical record. And there's very little in terms of coded, standard, harmonized data within that. A really rich source of information, but often slightly intractable to analyze due to that unstructured form being in free text. And also uh, one of the big problems we solve is around patient privacy as well and information governance. That rich source of data is full of patient names, patient information, and it's really key in what we're trying to build, which is a trusted research environment, a trusted ecosystem whereby patients can have confidence their data is being used safely and securely, is to make sure you're getting this piece right around de-identifying, we call it, but removing all of those patient identifiers from that free text, that unstructured information in the medical record, so that it can then safely be analyzed by people beyond the care team researchers, hospital analysts, things like this, people that are part of the life science, wider life science community as well that are involved in developing new treatments, new interventions. A kind of range of problems really, starting with uh, fundamental around privacy and governance and using software to do that piece at scale right through to 
quite advanced AI-based NLP, natural language algorithms, to really start to take this data and curate it into a format that we can use for research. And uh, can you tell me a little bit more about how you do that? Or do you have any annotation techniques? Is it unsupervised? How do you convert the unstructured text into these useful labels for research? The LP models, we use a range of kind of different methodologies, we put it. So elements of supervised learning as well as unsupervised learning. In particular, we've spent a lot of time working with clinicians and those who are actually entering the data. So really trying to figure out what people are trying to communicate when they're writing these notes. And that's important when you do the first step of this, which is designing the schema the kind of format within what you want to extract, what you want to represent these extractions as. Our job and this technology's job is to act as almost like a translation service. So not interpretation, but translation. So taking what was communicated within that text, taking it out, accurately transcribing it into a structured format. So it's really important to understand what the clinicians are observing, what are the important things to them, how they describe things, and then building a schema initially around that. And then we use a mixture of models, basically. So some things based on regular expressions, some things based on neural networks to serve different jobs within a kind of pipeline that we run and operate. In terms of the, we use some traditional, more traditional methods around clinicians will also annotate a piece or lots of different text notes to help produce a gold standard for us to validate and train the models against as well. So let's talk a little bit uh, more about you and, and your background. Reflecting on your journey from working clinically across psychiatric services to co-founding Acrivia Health, what were some of your key motivations and inspirations that led you to found this business, right? It, it, it's always a big bet to go from zero to one and found your own company. So I, I'd love to learn a little bit more about what inspired you to do that. My starting point, I've always had an interest in people. So I went to university to study psychology, enjoyed learning about that discipline. And then from there, went and started working in the Institute of Psychiatry in South London, Maudsley NHS Hospital Trust. And the kind of direction of travel for me at the time was all about, I wanted to become a clinical psychologist. I was drawn to that. I'd found real interest in studying and learning about people and why people do things and started on this kind of course where part of that was gaining experience working in various clinical services. I spent a long time working in um, acute old age psychiatric inpatient wards, some time in adult inpatient wards as well, working with eating disorders, a broad range of different clients and different patients I was working with. But it gave me like really good first-hand experience to see what are the treatment options for people. And my role at the time was to do anything and everything. So I was there with the nurses doing personal care with these people, helping people get up, get ready for the day, through to running occupational therapy groups, running supporting the psychologists in the ward to run their groups. But what you really start to observe and see when you sit and spend time with people is, you know, there aren't many treatment options in this space. And I, I always remember having some of these conversations uh, with, with patients who are asking me, like, do, do you think I can get better or do you think this can change? And it does really bring home when you're, like, you're reflecting on the state of where a therapeutic area is, you know, with psychiatry in particular, and particularly when you're working with neurodegenerative diseases, there aren't really any disease modifying treatments. There are only treatments to moderate symptoms, really. 
So looking back, it's definitely those are some of the early experiences, I think, that really helped give me good context and understanding of the system, but also a bit of that motivation to be, can this be any different? My story kind of evolves from there, go on to spend some time in academia, working in research to understand this problem a bit more around what's going on in psychiatry. Did a lot around trying to think about this idea and concept of recovery for people. So it put that problem to the side almost and said, what can you do? How can you live as well as possible despite symptoms? So it's almost not worrying about disease modification, but looking at lifestyle and wider factors about almost how to make the best of it. And then I got distracted, I would say, by my co-founder. When I was applying, I met Mike, who happened to be the CIO of the hospital at the time. And he was doing some incredibly interesting work around things like avatar therapy, where they were looking at using software to create representations or avatars of people's auditory hallucinations. So they could conduct three-way therapy with these therapists, the patient and the avatar. And it just blew my mind really a bit at the time. And just, this was really cool and really amazing kind of use of technology and seeing that intersection of how technology could be applied alongside therapeutic techniques that produce better patient outcomes. And I started working with Mike then and we did all sorts of projects and we started building out another sort of big passion area around uh, patient-held electronic medical records, patients actually owning and holding their own records. We built a system back in 2012 where patients could have access to their physical health data from their GP, their mental health care plan and information they could feed back as well to their care team. And that is a hope and direction as well that we might move a career in, in time as well, do more about engaging the individual. But all these things help lay for me a bit of the foundation about looking at technology, looking at the current status of the therapeutic space, what are the problems and opportunities and really laid the groundwork for me about entering into this. And I was also, I guess the other angle was having a business interest as well. I started a company as well, writing grants originally around a few years after or during when I was working with Mike, supporting people in writing grants and then grew that into a little kind of consultancy effectively where I helped people set up these types of research databases. In my kind of journey, I went from the Maudsley, moved up to Oxford University. Mike and I set up the kind of preceding program to Acrivia Health called UK Chris. Did a lot of work then around the legal governance side of things, around data protection models. So the privacy has been a real kind of backbone to what we do always within Acrivia, but always in my journey as well. And I translated that into this consulting work that I did and helped lots of universities and small companies started to employ a couple of people to help build up a client base. And there was a lot of work at the time. It was just when GDPR was being rolled out and implemented really in the country. So there was a real need for this. Again, it was like bringing together all these different experiences that when the opportunity came and we got to a bit of a sort of inflection point with what became Acrivia Health, what was called UK Chris, it had previously been grant funded and we'd had a, lots of conversations with the funders and they'd basically said, you need to start thinking about making this more sustainable. We can't continue to grant fund this. And that's when Mike and I and the other co-founder, Professor Sir Simon Lovestone, spent some time figuring out really a kind of business plan about how we could take this to the next level. There was like a number of pushes really. So one was around that sustainability piece, but also 
there are a lot of limitations of working within a kind of grant funded program we have a very tight mandate and what you can deliver upon so it was in some ways that perfect storm of factors that really helped us make the decision around okay let's go and raise some money and do our funding round and spin this out into a company there are so many threads in your story that we're going to explore when we have time today I definitely want to come back to the grant-funded aspect of the business and the journey of the spin-out from Oxford, but really just your pathway from being really close to patients, observing that there's all these people who have a real need and there's nothing I really have to offer them beyond my empathy and presence. And isn't there something else I could do driving you into academia and gaining a little bit of sensitivity and feedback for just you know what the gaps are and actually developing new therapeutics? And then finally, just the push point of, okay, David, we're not going to keep renewing these grants forever. You need to have something that you can take to an institutional investor and be able to scale this. Previously on the show, we had Robin Shaw, who is the co-founder of TimeCare, which is an oncology care navigation platform. And the reason I'm telling the story is because you made a, a very small mention there. It was almost an aside of maybe someday Right now, we're helping with real-world evidence, and we're helping to characterize the disease. But maybe someday, we can get back to that frontline patient engagement and like really finish out the whole loop. And so before Time Care, Robin was at Flatiron Health, where he worked for many years on real-world evidence within oncology, which, of course, has experienced incredible innovation over the last 15 years. You are far better off getting many types of cancer now than you were 15 years ago. But the reason he left Flatiron was after the acquisition from Roche, he's been in, Flatiron was his second oncology startup, so he's now onto his third. So he's been in the space for over 10 years and dad's a practicing oncologist, brother's an oncologist. Like if you get cancer, you're gonna call Robin and you're gonna say, what do I do? I just got this diagnosis. What do I do? Or my, my friend or my family member. And so he'd get those calls all the time. And he realized that after 10 plus years working to drive innovation oncology, he couldn't answer the question. And he became a care navigator. He became a, have you talked to your doctor about this? Have you asked these things? And that gave him the inspiration to create time care. Crivia, of course, within these conditions, we need to better characterize the diseases to develop new therapeutics. But it absolutely makes sense that to really get it to the patients, this is really just one step of a very long journey. And so maybe on that note, we can, you know, let's talk a little bit more about the what, right? So Acrivia Health boasts one of the world's largest structured psychiatric data sets. And you talk through a little bit about how you curate that. But can you share some specific statistics or insights from the data set that highlight its scale and potential impact? So I, I want to de-abstract it a bit. And maybe you can apply some of your previous experience from academia or clinical delivery of healthcare services. How do you bring this to life for people who aren't familiar with this area? We're processing now routinely around 5 million electronic health records from 18 different healthcare organizations. These records tend to be quite long, lengthy in nature. So often patients are chronic sufferers of disease. Often they'll have very long care records. I think anywhere from five years to 20 years of data now within these electronic medical records. And there are a lot, there are huge amounts for each patient in terms of clinical notes and clinical histories stored in there. I think there's something like 20 billion now data points within the system and it just continues to grow. So unfortunately, like you mentioned at the start, in terms of unmet need, in terms of general need and psychiatric issues, mental health, 
are just exponentially growing. These are people suffering with serious mental illness, so it tends to be the more serious end on the spectrum. It certainly mm -hmm. will include depression, anxiety, but it tends to be those who potentially have treatment resistance, who are and the more severe end. Also things like schizophrenia, bipolar, eating disorders, personality disorders. But these data sets seem to be growing at least 10% a year at the moment. Now, some of that will be natural alongside population growth, but it grows significantly. I could tell you in terms of impact in particular, though, one, one example that comes to mind is just where we started. So where this all began was at the Maudsley, South London Maudsley NHS Trust. One single organization has produced in excess of 300 academic publications from one trust. And now there are 18 trusts in this network, and we're really beginning to scale this up to see what it can do in terms of what we touched on in terms of characterizing these diseases, really being able to give a detailed kind of symptomatic presentation of what these diseases look like. So you meant we're using natural language processing, right? And you've got these really long patient records. Have large language models changed how you think about summarizing the content of these long summaries? How has the technical approach that you've been taking to pull out common features from this data set changed since founding the company to some of the new open source models coming online over the past year, for example? Yeah, so certainly they, they've been, we've certainly been using LLMs for some time now in the development of our NLP pipeline. One of the key things I think about our approach and also perhaps about becoming a spin out as well as, as really like fine tuned our thinking is the need to build very operationally efficient models that can be deployed. At the moment, we use a mixture of these large language models, but we also use some smaller models as well to help generate annotations and things like that to help train the larger models. Sometimes you can get a lot of the new models in particular can certainly work, but they're computationally resource intensive, we'll just say. So to deploy them at this sort of scale would be intensely costly. We've always got a balance as well. You know, rigor has got to be there first and foremost, but we've also got to keep in the back of our mind that we, we've got to be able to afford to run these models and we need to be able to run them in a timely fashion as well. When we talk about the whole kind of solution as such, there are all these pillars. So getting your privacy data governance piece right is critical. Without trust, all of this kind of falls apart and the source data disappears. So you need to make sure that you can de-identify, you can deal with privacy governance constraints and processing and access control to the data. And there's the NLP models, so dealing with building accurate, very good models that can not only identify mentions within text, but contextually classify those who understand the context within which it's mentioned. But then also, yeah, ones that can be deployed efficiently and quickly so you can think about how you write your code so you can scale it very quickly across numerous machines, but also in a way that doesn't cost the earth to run. And can you speak to why now is the right time for Acrivia? Now versus, say, five years ago. You mentioned the cloud a few times. How does technology like AWS and our partnership, how does that enable you to achieve Acrivia Health's mission? The thing that comes to mind first is upfront investment, that if we were trying to build this software service with an on-prem solution, we would need so much upfront capital. Our fundraisers would have looked very different. AWS has been a huge game changer in terms of being able to A, access the kind of technology you need, 
we spent a lot of time building the the governance and the assurance to to help bring these healthcare organizations confidently to the cloud. And then the cloud has provided the, the scalable computation and cloud for us to be able to build this sort of pipeline so we can start to see and elicit the true value of this data. What springs to mind talking about this is that, yeah, Krivia is just trying to solve in some ways this access problem, trying mm. to get the data out. People know it contains lots of very rich information, so it's very closely guarded. So you need to make sure you're supporting and helping people to extricate that data and then putting together the technology stack and the, the governance and expertise that you need to start to translate that, turn that data into something that can be usable. And I think Krivia is just now getting to the point where it has done that. We've just expanded our signs and symptoms NLP to extract over 400 different symptoms from these clinical documents and contextualize each one to understand was the mention negated, was it affirmed, was it about the patient, or was it about a family member, really understand the mention. And it feels like such a game changer for us that we can suddenly start to really think about these diseases at quite a granular symptomatic level and start to look at major depressive disorder and see symptomatically if we present that disease does it group into clusters can we mm. see different subtypes and so it feels like we, we've spent a long time putting all these different pillars in place and now we're starting to see the fruit of that as such i think you may benefit from that work more than say a consumer gen ai company that hasn't thought about the scaling at all so it can be very tempting to just spin up a service, say, for generating WhatsApp group images or responses on social media or any of the other non-healthcare related Gen AI consumer apps that we're seeing appear without really thinking about cost scaling. Because the yeah. actual cost per query into the APIs, it seems low until you scale usage, right? But because you're working with records that have such large text-based unstructured data sets adjoined to them, right? It's almost perhaps even a, a brief novel for a patient that might have five to 10 years of clinical history. You had that traffic out of the gate just in terms of the corpus. So you've been forced to architect it in a way that as you scale records, you'll achieve better cost performance than somebody just stumbling in and I'm just going to hit this API and see what I get back. Absolutely. And we, we spend a lot of time with academic colleagues as well, where this often doesn't really get a lot of attention. It, it's more around F1 scores, how accurate your model is, what was the performance in terms of accuracy and recall and things like that over 500 documents, say. But you said out the gate, one organization might be throwing 100 million documents um, at us in terms of what we need to process. And then you're not going to monetize that until downstream when you create commercial relationships with a drug discovery company or pharmaceutical or, or whatever. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, that's what it feels like. You have to go on all these different steps. We're just touching on the real world data piece here, but there's obviously more to it in terms of biological data. But in particular, it is the focus is all right. We know psychiatry needs precision. We know we need to be looking beyond the diagnostic code. There is the ask there and the knowledge there for that data. Then just to create it, you have to go through all these different steps of being like, build all the assurance models, make sure the healthcare organization is happy, build the technology, and then build the infrastructure to process it and then make it available. And that's when you get paid. So in the UK, we have primary care, which is your general practitioners, your first port of call where for any illness and your secondary care specialists who you get referred to for various different specialties. And 
we have physical health and mental health separated out. One piece for our secondary care mental health users is what happened before they arrived in service and what happens afterwards. Getting that primary care information has been crucial and fingers crossed this week, we should be linking our first of the 18 trusts, their primary care data. And I'm really excited because we're going to be able to hopefully for the first time, see cradle to grave histories, patients of mm. what led up to that referral, what potential risk factors are there that we could identify that lead to an episode, what happens afterwards, what are the outcomes of patients, what happens to those that don't make it into secondary care and really start to be able to actually just even just see, okay, let's firstly get a complete picture of what's going on. And then we can hopefully get into thinking about, okay, what can we do differently? What can we learn from this? David, congratulations on establishing that partnership. And we talked about the unstructured clinician notes from a clinical psychologist, and then you just touched on partnerships with primary care providers to get a more rounded view of individuals to inform your data engine. Are there other notable data modalities that you think hold promise, either because they're currently passing through the Acrivia Health platform or ones that you've put a light on and that you're focusing toward them? The other big one for us is around the biological side of this, in particular, the genetic side. And we have a, a national study now where working with our partners, Cardiff University and also a global pharmaceutical partner, we've got a study where we're working with this data set to help identify potential patients and center them into a study, taking a blood sample, generating a whole genome from that blood sample and connecting that genetic data to this really richly defined electronic medical record data as well. The longer term plan is also to start providing some form of digital piece to engage the individual in, in this research more directly so they can feed back their own data and we can feed back to them how it's being used and what some of the insights that are being generated. To answer your question, what's really exciting is to start joining the dots here. So that whole view, primary, secondary care, fantastic. What's underpinning this and thinking about are there any genetic drivers that potentially are informing or, or driving any association with some of these presenting symptoms. Are there other biological mechanisms we can start to identify? So we're building a biobank as well as when you take a blood sample, you can spin and separate the blood into plasma and serum, as well as the blood cells itself, and use that for proteomic and biomarker analysis as well. Really, all this is trying to just develop a really detailed picture of this cohort and start to tease out and see whether there are any patterns, any associations we can identify and generate, hopefully, a whole swathe of new hypotheses around this sort of disease area. And David, what were the inclusion criteria for that study where you're taking the whole genome sequencing data? Are you looking at treatment-resistant depression, PTSD? What, what specific indications are you targeting? Specifically, schizophrenia, bipolar, major depressive disorder, and dementia, Alzheimer's in particular but also look at the other areas, things like vascular dementia as well. And wow. That'll be hugely exciting to track the progression of that. And if you're able to identify any promising gene therapy targets or others. So let's talk about uh, the money a little bit. So we've talked about the generation of the asset. Commercially, can you tell me about who's paying for this and what type of companies are, are interested in leveraging this asset and, and how you work with commercial partners? Just to illustrate the model quickly in that with our spin out, with the way we set things up, we provide essentially a service to our healthcare providers for free, where we deploy our software, curate their data, provide a, a research environment and analytics platform for the healthcare services we curate and structure it so they can use it for their research, their service evaluations and audits. 
And in exchange, they grant us the right to further anonymize that data and then use it for the commercial purposes that then subsequently fund further development of the products, et cetera. The people paying for those services are pharmaceuticals in general, contract research organizations, biotech companies. They tend to be commissioning us to do pieces of work to analyze data from across all of those healthcare organizations, the full 5 million EHR cohorts. We also have been commissioned to do cognitive impairment and schizophrenia where there is no ICD-10 DSM code for that disease, for that particular subtype of schizophrenia. Being able to really leverage and utilize that symptomatic NLP-derived data is helping mm. us to identify more specific cohorts and look at things like treatment adherence, look at adverse events for that population, look at health outcomes for that population, disease burden. The other source is clinical trials, being able to identify patients at quite a granularity, opens up the opportunity to take in protocols from sponsors, see what's feasible in the UK, in particular where we have our healthcare sites. And we've built the model so as not only can we run this on the anonymized data, but then we can pass the queries back to the NHS, to the healthcare organizations involved who could run it on their pseudonymized data. So they hold a key to re-identify those patients. In this model, mm. due to that, we can't ID the patients, we preserve their privacy, but the healthcare organization and the treating clinician can. So we can pass a query back, they press a button, provides them an NHS number that they can then look up the patient and then approach them for trials. This has been another revenue generating model and it, it works very nicely for both us and the healthcare providers. And then the healthcare organizations have more opportunity to participate in the trials. We can let them know about more commercial opportunities, which drives income to their sites. The patients tend to be quite happy that there's an actual option for them to be able to participate in some of this research and get involved in a trial. It works quite nicely as a kind of model that trying to line up each of the players as a win-win scenario. The final uh, revenue stream is our SaaS offering. We've built a research analytics platform and a, an API as well. And those basically sit in front of the harmonized EHR data and they provide an environment that can be licensed out to industry. The API is quite interesting because it's been used around clinical decision support, being fed into systems whereby it can tell you patients like this tend to have these outcomes, tend to spend this much time on treatment, tend to be switched mm. this often. A lot of our time has been just getting the access sorted and we're just moving into that application phase where we can start to apply this data to different use cases. I very much appreciate how you've taken a privacy by design approach and really architected the solution to protect this vulnerable patient population from the very beginning. Really, you just have to do that. And you, at the end of the day, you're a data company, right? So your ability to yeah. generate these insights and distribute them is going to directly correlate with how much capital you can generate to scale the impact. And so there is an alignment of incentives there, but you have to do it in a way that protects patient privacy not only because you ethically have to, but you commercially have to as well. Because if you burn the trust bridge, you lose all your data access, right? How else do you think about privacy? And why is this a priority for Acrivia? Acrivia stands for precision in Greek. Mm. And we want to move psychiatry towards a precision-based approach. A lot like the oncology story you've talked about, we want psychiatry to be moving in the same direction. To get us there, we recognize that we have to ask more of patients to share more information, to do all of this, to ask more from people. They need to 
know implicitly that the people they're working with, you've got to be able to trust them. You know, n- none of us will want to share our data with people we find untrustworthy. It goes hand in hand. Like You can't become a precision health company if you're not going to take privacy seriously or be at the core, really, of what you do. I think to really build precision models, we have to have a privacy-first approach where people know from the outset all your design decisions are starting from that point. That's a kind of first axiom to me of how this is going to work. And I think if you build that trust and those strong foundations, then you can build on top of that. Yeah, and I think you've proven that with the traction you've had. So we've talked about the spin-out story a few times, and I want to come back to it because it's a, it, it is a topic of interest in the UK, which produces a disproportionate share of PhDs and other academic leaders and translates that to commercially successful uh, companies less often you know, than other companies. And so there's, there have been recent updates in the UK inspecting how spin-outs work, but I would love to hear just your story about what the spin-out experience was like and, and generally how you think about managing investor relationships. Every founder listening to the show is balancing the trade-offs of ownership, influence, access, capital, and you know, just how you thought about these trade-offs across Acrivia Health's journey. I think certainly my experience at the University of Oxford, there's two balancing things. On the one hand, some universities will take more of a stake uh, than others in terms of equity share, but also some universities provide a lot more support than others. Without doubt that, that we were in a very good ecosystem. There's a cohort of Oxford-based investors that work very closely with the university that support a lot of the spin-outs. You get a leg up uh, in terms of introductions and access to to an investor pool right from the outset. And the, the knowledge transfer group within Oxford University Innovation were, were very supportive throughout. Key for me is getting to the end result as much as anything, that we do need capital to, to do this, that I think we as founders are normally balancing the usual things about how much control and influence we want over the business versus the need to bring in further capital to keep everything going and also to achieve your strategic ambitions as well. So David, I guess just put more directly, how do you think about institutional investment? And have you thought about approaching VCs for a formal priced round? Is that something you think would be part of your future? What do you think about raising capital from VCs to fund growth? Necessary. (laughs) I think it depends (laughs) on what stage of it. So at the moment, we had a a seed round where we had a, a, a VC partner do that. I think what I note certainly for us is that we did a Series A where we had an institutional US investor, a very different experience to the to the VC, and we're just about to fundraise again, and we're going towards VC at this time, partly because of our stage and what we're looking for. We've had a lot of interest from PE, but it's still probably too early for us to benefit from that. I think what's been challenging a little bit is that PE seem to offer a lot more in terms of that operational experience and connecting you to ex-operators and experts in the field. This may be slightly unfair, but in the VC world, it's more access to capital, potentially a little bit more kind of risk tolerance within that group. But for us, yeah, a big part of our strategic plan moving forward is internationalization. It's really this round will focus on scaling the commercial side of the business, helping us scale out of the UK into new jurisdictions. So there's this real challenge sometimes I think finding the right investor can be really tricky. 
those that can bring capital and experience, I think it's a hard thing sometimes to find at different stages of the business. Maybe you need to do your hard yards first and figure it out and try and get there and then benefit from that experience further when the sort of risk has come off your proposition further. But it's certainly a trade-off and I certainly think for us, I mean, we're talking to lots of VCs, but getting that balance of trying to bring not just capital into your business, but the right people and experience to help you really achieve what you want to achieve is still always a challenge. I think particularly at this early stage, we're not quite yet big enough for PE, but we're not far off, but still a reasonable, decent size for a VC to be taking part in. Yeah, indeed. And a defocus from um, the core mission of just del- getting the collaboration set up and the models processed and the the commercial agreement set up to get to clinical impact faster. I appreciate that, but you've got to you've got to balance the long and the short term view, David. As we're about to wrap up, and you and I are about to go return to England in December, which is dark, and cold, and dreary. I say that half in jest, but it really is like that. Tell me about the team at Acrivia. I'd like to finish with some advice for for other founders and just you know a, anything you've learned over your journey. So let's think about this through the lens of your team and recruiting and building a, a multidisciplinary culture that can effectively deliver on the promise that you're trying to do. How have you thought about recruitment across Acrivia Health's life and what advice do you have for people who are trying to get the right people on the bus? Yeah, for some reason, it, it, the question prompts me of Stephen Bartlett's comment about that you're a, a lot of businesses is just recruitment companies trying to find the right people. Mm-hmm. To really help and there's definitely an element of truth in that of building a good team and sometimes it feels cliches but taking time to hire the right people and being swift when you've hired the wrong people because i certainly know from my experience it feels like a building a business is effectively building a team and downloading everything as the founder in particular into them is a key challenge and finding the right people who then you trust as well to go and take that forward so you can go on and continue to strategically develop the business as aligned with your plans and in order to execute those plans and often at this stage for us the the founders are still probably in the best position to have the whole view of what the company's trying to deliver so having that operational layer has been a key part for me personally of progress and honestly i feel like i'm only just getting there really in terms of a building the team and me being the person i need to be in order to help this company move forwards and i think we've definitely gone through that i think it's the tuckman model of forming storming norming and performing and then at Mm. each stage when you grow from the two person to the 10 person company to the 30 to the 50 plus we've just gone past about 55 people now but each evolution almost requires going back through it again of refiguring out what's my role now both at the executive layer and then as you're building the team below getting that team built really clearly knowing what are they there to do what are the kind of overall objectives what are we all working towards we spent a long time recently just really clearly defining what are the goals and objectives like five objectives for the company in the next 24 months how does every team contribute to that and then how does every person contribute to that i do think it's made a big impact I think particularly coming from that more perhaps clinical and pathetic background, I've had to learn and grow as a person to be able to be a lot more at times directive. And you have to switch from that kind of when you're in a certain stage, you need some very clear direction at other stage, moving more into that sort of coaching collaborative type leadership role as well. It's been a journey, certainly personally for me. Spoken like a great COO, setting good goals and setting the direction, communicating well and establishing expectations within the organization. 
David Newton, the COO and co-founder of Acrivia Health. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Alex. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us today for the AWS Health Innovation Podcast. If you want to get in touch with AWS, please check out our show notes where you can find a link. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to support us is to share it with your colleagues and friends. We also really appreciate your reviews and ratings wherever you listen to podcasts. We love hearing feedback from our listeners, so please don't hesitate to get in touch. Again, you'll find all the details in our show notes. See you next week.